I've mentioned before I'm not a Hallmark preacher. I don't always preach what the holidays are, or I'd never get a chance to preach. But this is an acceptable occasion to preach the holiday, because the holiday is entirely appropriate to discuss our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he gave us. But maybe a little bit differently, I'm going to preach out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll likely be there the whole time. Rather than read through it all the way, I'm just going to read sections and I'm going to pause and review a few things as we read together. So, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church. And in chapter 15, before he closes, he gives some important details. He says in the first two verses, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so the Apostle Paul is telling those, in this case through a letter, he is reminding them of the gospel that he has preached to them. The word about Jesus Christ, about his death and his burial and his resurrection, about how to conduct their lives, how they should be living by faith, how they must be saved from their sins. And he is reminding them that they need to be reminded about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is true 2,000 years ago as it is today. And so with the Lord's help, I tend to hopefully can follow Paul and remind you, many of you have already heard this, but I want to remind you about the gospel and encourage you, as this letter says, to stand by faith in your salvation, in the salvation that he, Jesus Christ, has won for you. And so he continues in verse 3 and 4, he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Caiaphas and then to the twelve. And I want to pause there for just a second. Because what Paul is preaching in this letter, and I intend to preach to you today, is still of first importance. See, I could tell you many things about doctrine. I could teach you many things from the scriptures that are, in fact, historical and correct. I can give you all manner of encouragement about how to live. But the most important thing of first importance is the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified, was buried and dead, and rose on the third day. And that is of first importance because Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. He is not just another person. He is not just a good teacher. He is, in fact, God himself, God in flesh. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is read the scriptures. Because time and time again, Jesus Christ himself says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This is vitally important. It is of first importance that we understand who Jesus Christ is. And if you go to... I'll just air quote and say some churches today or talk to many people today. They will tell you, well, Jesus is just another good teacher. Well, he, in fact, was a good teacher. 
But a good teacher will never lie to you and tell you they are something that they are not. And if you read the scripture, you see that Jesus proclaims to be the Son of God. And so you cannot have it both ways and say, well, he's a good teacher. There's some good things we should learn from him when he's going to tell you, in fact, a lie. And so I stand on first importance and say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for our sins because of us, having lived a perfect life, that he didn't just die temporarily, that he was dead for three days in the tomb, buried, and that he rose conquering death, conquering sin on the third day. And this is of first importance in our lives. It is and ought to be the important thing that we focus our lives on. And Paul goes on to give an example of all those who have seen him since he's returned. He gives us the witnesses in the following verses to help prove, in fact, what he is claiming. So we can read verse 5 through 11, it says, And that he appeared to Caiaphas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whoever then it was, I or they, so we preach and you believe. And so the Apostle Paul, and to be an apostle means that they is someone who actually saw Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so Paul had after he came to know Christ after Christ had died and was buried and resurrected. Christ came and specifically confronted him and Paul had a changed life and became an apostle. And he began to teach and to preach along with the other apostles and the other disciples and those who had seen him living to tell the truth to those who needed to hear the gospel, which means the good news of Jesus Christ, the thing that is of first importance. And he is laying out here for the Corinthian church and to us today that there were hundreds of people who saw Jesus after he came back to life. This is not a fantasy. This is not something made up. This is not a nice story we tell our children. This is, in fact, the truth and is of first importance. And then he goes on, and I want to take just a minute to explain um, where we go with this, because verse 12 through 20 takes us down an interesting path. And so you must understand a little bit of the context of the time. It was likely that there were a few maybe in the church and definitely those outside of the church in Corinth who were saying there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. There is no life after death, if you will. You simply die and that's it, which is interesting because we hear some of the same things today, don't we? And so Paul is addressing this head on because it is of first importance. And so he makes a series of if statements and then concludes it with a very important point. So let me read 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if 
Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most pitied. And so here Paul is laying out a series of if statements for us to understand the truth of what he says. Why it is so important that Christ actually rose, right? That the tomb is actually empty. Because there have been good men for thousands upon thousands of years who have died for other people. There have been good men who have died for thousands of years for those who don't deserve it, as we don't. But there is only one man, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, who died on my behalf, who conquered death and came back to life. And after, there is a resurrection. And we have a hope, not only in this life, but in the fact that there is one to come, that we will be reunited with God in heaven to reign forever with Him. And this is what Paul is so eloquently defending here. And he is stating that when we have objections to this or questions, we can simply ask ourselves these questions. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If you don't believe that it's possible for someone to come back from the dead or say that it isn't dogmatically, then Christ couldn't have come back either. He goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and your faith is in Vain. What does it mean to have vain faith? It means that you have an imaginary, unfounded, devoid of value and benefit, not based on truth. Now, interestingly enough, these are still some of the claims that are lobbied our way today, aren't they? You're making this all up. There's no way this guy actually did this. You're telling me that a man 2,000 some odd years ago died and because of that, you can have a relationship with God? It's exactly what I'm telling you. It's exactly what Paul was telling us then. It is the first importance truth that you must know. Because if it isn't true, then this is all a bunch of made up stuff. If it isn't true that Jesus Christ conquered death and came back from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God, then this is all vain and useless. That means my preaching is useless. Good for nothing. It also means that I'm giving you a false witness. That I'm telling you something that I know isn't true. Now, I can't stand here today and tell you that I have seen Jesus Christ, but I can tell you what I do know that it has been made plain to me that He is living, that He has conquered death, and I will stand here today as a witness of that and proudly proclaim it that I know that my Redeemer lives. And so my preaching is not in vain because he is living and it's not a false witness because it is true. And then he goes on, he says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. And importantly here, it adds, you are still in your sins. You see, this is the value of what happened. When Christ died, and I've hinted at this multiple times this morning, when he died, he sacrificed himself on our behalf. 
And when we have faith in him, we are forgiven of all the sins that we have done, are doing, and will do. And sometimes we forget this as people. Sometimes, even as believers, we forget the fact that God knew when he paid my penalty what I had done, what I will do, and what I am doing, and he loved me anyway. See, God didn't just die for you because you were good enough, because none of us are ever good enough, nor will we ever be. He died for everyone to allow us to know him. And if this isn't true, if he hasn't been raised, then our faith is futile and we are still stuck in our sins, unable to get to God. If in Christ, it goes on, we hope only for this life, then we are most miserable and in some translations say to be pitied. See, this is why the empty tomb is of vital importance, of first importance. Because if we think that somehow we all get together, We sing some songs. We feel good. We had a good breakfast this morning. We're really good friends. And you know what? I love every single minute of that. I love this church and you who are here. But there is more to this life than simply having a good breakfast and a good service this morning. There's more than the things that we do together. There's more than crying on each other's shoulders when we have a death in our family. There's more than celebrating wonderful things together. There is an afterlife and eternal that lasts forever. And if there wasn't, then what we do is kind of silly. But I believe with all my heart that there is an afterlife, that there is a reason for living. I have been asked a couple of times in my life, only occasionally very seriously, about my beliefs and about how it keeps me from having fun, quote, right? And you know what I tell people? I don't regret a minute of it. I could go back and do all the things that everyone else in life has done. Maybe it would have been fun for the time, But I don't regret living for the Lord for a moment. And those who have some age on you, those who have some experience on you, I know that you would say the same thing. That you would stand here and say, it is worth it to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind to try to do that your entire life than to have fun for a moment. To enjoy the things that life wants to give you temporarily. Because we know that there is an eternal afterlife that we can be united with God. It is more than now. It is about the future as well. If in Christ we only hope in this life, then we are miserable and to be pitied. But, verse 20, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, destroyed every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he exempted who put all things in subjection under his feet. 
when all things are in subjection to him, then the Son of Man himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be in all, may be all in all. Now that can be a little confusing, so let me try and unpack that for just a moment. Here's the reality. The gospel here is telling us that if there is no resurrection, then we have no hope. No point. No reason for faith. No reason for living. But in fact, it is true that Christ has come back and been raised from the dead. And what this does is a kind of first fruits, a foreshadowing of our lives to come. And it gives us this example of Adam and Christ. And this is talked about multiple places in the scripture. Because if you recall, going all the way back to Genesis, God made Adam and Eve, and he put Adam in charge. And Adam sinned. Adam chose to rebel against God because he wanted to be equal with God. He thought that would be great. And so he did the one thing that God told him to do. We had one rule, one rule in paradise, and we messed it up. And we got kicked out of the garden and eternally separated from God because we have sin in our lives. We do the wrong thing. We get it by birth and we do it naturally by choice. And we continue to sin and to sin and to sin. And because of that, we are separated from God. And so the solution had to be someone who could pay the penalty. The only one who can pay the penalty is God himself because God is perfect. And so he sent his perfect son, fully God, in the form of a man who was born miraculously, who lived a life, who had every opportunity to sin, but did not sin so that he could die as a perfect sacrifice for us. And so when it talks about bearing the first fruits, this is what this verse and chapter is talking about. That Christ is the example of the one who died and was resurrected to give us life because the first man died to death and could not get his way out of it. See, we have a very common phrase in our society today. We call it pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Maybe you've heard that before. Well, if you've ever tried it, you'll know it's completely pointless. No matter how hard I pull on my shoes or my boots, I'm not coming off the ground any at all. You ever had a kid try and do that? You should try it when you're real little. Tell them to try it. Just sit there and pull and pull and pull. When we try to get to God any other way other than through Jesus Christ, it's about as effective. We can pull and pull and pull all we want to. We never just raise off the ground. We have to have something else. And that something is of first importance, and that is Jesus Christ who came into this world, who lived the life to destroy every rule, every authority, every power, and to someday reign, putting all the enemies under his feet. He goes on and tells us a little bit about what's the point of this if it isn't true. Verses 29 through 34, he says as follows, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger in every hour? I protest, brothers, by pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins or corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your 
shame. So the Apostle Paul is saying, if none of this is true, then why are we doing all of this? Why am I being shipwrecked and arrested? Why am I being beaten? Why am I spending my time and my energy preaching something that isn't true? Why are you here if this isn't true? Why go through all of this if, in fact, it isn't true? And then he quotes a well-known play of the time and a well-known line. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You've probably heard that one before. And the other one, bad company corrupts good morals. What is he trying to say here? The problem is that when we don't know what's of first importance, when we don't know who Jesus Christ is, and we don't truly believe that he came back from the dead to buy me, to ransom me from my sins, we just go about our life eating and drinking, because, you know, tomorrow, that may be it. Or we hang out with the world and let the good morals that we started with get corrupted even more. He's not saying this to encourage us. He's saying, how dare us? And I will add to this, and I think because he's preaching to the church, I can say it appropriately too. How dare us for living a life like this? How many of us know the free pardon of sin, understand who Christ is, believe who he is, have been saved by him, but then go back to our old lives and eat and drink like it doesn't matter? We go out and we run around with our friends like it doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want. We'll just go with them. Maybe we'll just do like 80% of what they do. You see the problem here? We're not functionally living like we really believe this. If we truly believed this and understood it as we need to, we wouldn't just be going around eating and drinking, que sera, sera, which is a Latin phrase, means whatever will be, will be, just living our lives. We would be purposefully looking unto him, trying to live a life worthy of him. And he tells us that we ought to wake up from our stupor. Some of us have no knowledge of God Another translation adds, you are disgracefully arrogant of him. I'm sorry, disgracefully ignorant of him. Are you ignorant of God? Ask yourself. It's an interesting question. Oh, I think you can be saved and be pretty ignorant still. You think of that as a really bad word. Because generally it doesn't have good context. But it's an interesting question. Are you ignorant of God? And then he adds, I say this to our shame. Well, then he goes on and he continues. He talks about the resurrection some more. I want to read verse 29 through 34 as we hurry along. But someone will ask, how were the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but the bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there are one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of heaven is of one kind, and the glory of earthly is another. There is one glory in the sun, and another glory in the moon, and another glory of the stars, and the stars differ from the, and the star differs from the star in glory." So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in the natural body. It is raised in the spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
Thus it is written, the first main Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, and man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So here again, Paul is trying to remind us that we can spend lots of time trying to figure this out. But it's very, very simple. When we go out and plant anything, we put a seed that looks nothing like what it will become in the ground. Ever thought about that? We don't go and take like, you know, many corn plants and like bury them in the ground. We take the kernel and we put it in the ground. We don't go out and take any other thing and just bury it in the ground. What goes into the ground becomes something different. And I think what Paul is trying to say is we can spend a lot of time worrying about what the future will be like. Well, what happens when we become immortal? What happens if we are changed like Christ? The answer is we don't have a clue. God has created everything and it's under his control. The moon is like the moon. The stars are like the stars. The sun is like the sun. We are not like any of those things, and we are not like the fish or the birds. The matter of fact is, the point of the lesson here is we all will die, and you will either spend eternity separated from God in a place that is called hell, or we will spend eternity with God in a place that he designed for us to be with him called heaven. And what we will look like and do up there, I don't have a clue but I'm going to find out. And I want you to find out. That's why in 1 John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Someday, we will be like him. I'm almost done, so bear with me. Verse 50 through 53, he tells us of a mystery. Now, this is no longer really a mystery. It was for a long time because Christ revealed this mystery to us and we have it recorded in the scripture. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit from the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, if you followed along with me this far, you may be saying, I don't have a clue what's going on. So let me try and very briefly break it down. We are physical beings made by God, living in a world made by God. The ultimate design is of spirit. Christ was of a spirit. He is God. He inhabited a human form. He died physically, rose to life, conquering death. In a similar fashion, we are human-made creatures who will die, but our soul will go on after this. And what that soul looks like, how our bodies work, I don't really know. I don't think Paul did either. It's going to be different. But the reality is, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then you will not be with this group of people who are spending eternity in him. 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is important too, because as I said earlier, it doesn't matter how good you think you are, you will not inherit the kingdom. There is no one on this earth who can be good enough to get into heaven. End of story, full stop. And you can go again, I'm just being, I guess, really critical today, to many quote-unquote churches, and they can tell you, well, if you're good enough, then God will let you in. Leave as quick as you can. It's not what the Scripture says. It never has been, never will be. What the Scripture teaches is you can't be good enough. Save the power and sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. That's the point. That's what's of first importance. That's why we are here. That is what I preach. That is what has been preached since the founding of the world. It is a work that Christ does alone because of him conquering death that we actually have a victory. And that's what I want to talk about in the last little bit here. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is at some point, Jesus Christ, having raised from the dead, sitting at the right hand of the Father, will be told by God himself, Son, go and get your church. Go and get your people. And if that happens while you and I are alive, there will be a great trumpet sound. The dead in Christ who are dead and buried and gone will raise somehow, will be caught up in the air, and we will join them as we have a new body to live eternally with Jesus Christ who paid a sacrifice for me. That is the victory over death. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It is no more because Christ has defeated it. And once and for all, will defeat it. The sting of death is in sin. The fact that we do wrong. The power by sin. Sorry, the power of sin is in the law. That means that because of the law, we're told what we should and shouldn't do. And we violate that. But thanks to God who gives the victory through Jesus Christ. It's not my victory. It's not your victory. It's the victory of Jesus Christ that we celebrate. And the last verse is very important. And I'm going to borrow from one of your former pastors. And I think he would appreciate. Therefore, what was it he said? What for? But for? Always draw your attention to that phrase. Because here is the closing phrase, 58 verses in to this chapter. Therefore, summarizing everything that I've said so far. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What is the answer to all of this for those of us who know the free pardon of sin? That we are to continue working, that we are to be steadfast, that we are to be immovable, that we are to abound or grow in the work that we do for God, and that we will know that our work and our effort is not in vain. Why? Because Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day, according to the scriptures. You see, Paul ties this back around. 
Understanding the first important thing of who Christ is. Living a life according to that. Standing firm on the gospel. Never moving from that. Never wavering and abounding in the work that God gives you to do. We can know that it's not in vain. Why? Because whenever I die, it's not the end. It's only near the beginning. And that this body will decay and rot, but I will receive a new one. Different from what I can possibly imagine. As different as a seed is from what comes out of the ground. And I will be united with him because of the sacrifice that he made for us. And all of this is possible because of what we celebrate today. Because the grave was empty. Because he conquered death. Because he defeated death. And so I ask you today to really consider your estate. Do you know that this is true? Because the reality is, I've told you the gospel today. I've told you everything and more that you need to know to put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he is not there. That part's up to you. I can't force you to believe something. You have to believe. And I firmly believe that the scripture teaches that there will be conviction for having, as I felt, missed the point. Conviction for a sin, whatever it is, and a desire for you to be made right with God. When you realize your separation because of sin and you come to God asking for forgiveness, I believe that he will respond and he will save you when you put your faith in him. And so we give you an opportunity this morning. In just a minute, I'm going to ask for a hymn to be played. I'm going to ask for anyone who would like to, to come and to pray. And just as a way of reminder, and for some of you, this is becoming quite the repeated theme. You can get saved here. You can get saved at your pew. You can get saved on the way home. You can be saved and meet the Lord anywhere, as we talked about this morning. You can lock yourself away in a room like the apostles did, all scared, and God showed up. You can be doubting and honestly tell God, God, I'm not sure. Show me like Thomas did and he will come to you. You can be sobbing and crying in tears as Mary was outside of the tomb, and when Jesus showed up and just called her name, she crumbled in front of him. You can carefully examine everything about the scriptures and everything that I've said like Peter did, and you can come to the realization later. Or you can just take a very brief look like John did and say, I believe. Whatever it is, you must understand and say, Exactly what Thomas did. Because when Thomas was approached, doubting Thomas, good old doubting Thomas, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. See, until you truly believe he's God, you just think he's a good teacher. A good teacher can't save you, but God can. So you must put your faith in him. And if God is calling you today, if God is leading you, then all I ask is that you would respond to him. We can pray with you. We can pray for you. I can't save you. But I can certainly point you to the one who can.